T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Conservative. What I don't like about Washington is they're very nice to your face, and then they take a shiv or a machete, and they stab it in your back. I'm a Wall Street guy, and I'm more of a front-stabbing person, and, and I'd rather tell people directly how I feel about them. Nobody talk about politics, like, don't say anything, you know. A marriage that's been through it all. She has filed for divorce over his naked political ambition. These are the views of a couple in love. A couple with children. A couple with differing opinions and perspectives a couple that survived he's kind of like an impetuous guy in in many ways that's great in some ways it's tough when you're married what leads them back to each other communication conversation and a realistic outlook on the world we live in your hosts anthony and deirdre scaramucci this is mooch and the missus hi everyone we're back in studio this week last week i uh was bedridden and couldn't make it in, so we're here. I'm all better, and I have my energy back, and I dragged the mooch with me. Hi, mooch. Well, you got some announcements here, babe. Why don't you tell people what we're doing yeah. here? Your first anniversary. Yeah, so believe it or not, um, I think, when was our official first podcast? I don't know. I think it was right after Labor Day last year. But this year, um, on the 17th of the month of September, we're having um, a party to celebrate our first anniversary of Mooch and the Misses. And we're busy um, getting some guests together, some surprise guests. And uh, we're having it at our, our old um, haunt, the Hunt and Fish Club. I know you're going to bring some interesting and fun people, yeah, no, right? Yeah, of course. You're you always whole, good for that. We've got a whole list of fun people coming. Uh, former Real Housewives in New Jersey. Right, for, former. Yeah. So now they're living their best lives. Yeah. Um, so Kathy Wakil. How do you say her name? Wakili? Wakili. Wakili. That's an interesting name. I'm very name. well versed in the housewives now, by the way. Thanks to Deirdre. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you yeah. probably know more than I do at this point. Um, and Jacqueline Larita. I remember her well. Those are, I think they were both well, they're on doing G- a podcast here at Intercom. So uh, yep. they're going to come and uh, join in the festivities. And so uh, live show, September 17th. Yeah. If and anyone wants to come down to hunt and fish. Yeah. Come check us out. Um, so, Robots. What did that say? Robots. <laughs> oh, my God. So, um, okay, so little, we have a guest in studio today, but unfortunately we made him wait for us. We were super late because we, sorry. we are helicopter parents, and we spent Nicholas James Scaramucci's first day of kindergarten with him in the classroom to meet the teacher and show him the classroom, talk about something that only goes on in 2019. Lawrence, did you do that for your son? Did you sit in the classroom with nope. him in kindergarten? No. no. Right? You just kicked him did out of the not. house, right? Sent just him, sent him off and, to the bus. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, how, I mean, that's, that's how it should be. That, 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 I mean, it's unbelievable. But, but, but ladies and gentlemen, we have in studio one of the world's most renowned chemists, best-selling author, Lawrence Rocks, uh, celebrating his 86th year, and you look fantastic. So I'm getting the whole 
diet? What are the antioxidants? How much red wine are you drinking? You're very kind. Yeah, you look you Thank look you. you look amazing. But not only that, he's completely sharp as a tack. You know, and, and I hope I I don't get enough sleep and I don't make any sense. But, but the fascinating thing about you, in addition to being friends with Rob Taub, who was on our podcast a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, Lawrence has also written about baseball, and he has a son who's a baseball agent. And uh, he's helped baseball players uh, using advanced science to understand the mechanics of hitting, fielding, catching, and also st- statistics, I'm sure, are involved in that as well. But uh, Which is awesome. Um, baseball is one of our favorite sports. So Right, Mooch? Uh, yeah, totally. So your Moochie. mother was from Austria? She's a, the family's from Austria. And, and your father was a family from Italy. So do you get pissed off in like hot and cold weather? Or, or that's or, right. Yeah, so you, you can take on anybody, right? <laughs> Austrian Italian. I mean, that's pretty. Com- that's a pretty good combination. That is a great so, combination. Actually. So uh, did a doctoral thesis in German in the field of analytical chemistry, separating metal atoms and semi-aqueous solutions. Uh, Wait a second. Br- so brilliant guy. You, you you speak German, or someone helped you? Well, I did then poorly, but I I did it. It was the chemistry that worked. Okay, yeah, that that translates into yeah. any language, correct? When you when you chemistry, wrote your, when you wrote science. your first book about the energy crisis, which coincided obviously with the seventy three crisis, uh, what gave you the premonitions? What gave you the signals that things were coming to a head? It was data from the oil industry: uh, barrels recovered per foot of drilling was going down for a decade. And that implied that it's getting harder and harder to find oil. Uh, So if you extrapolate with the declining output per foot of drilling and a greater need for oil, you could see that something has to give. We have to find new fields that are very productive or new technology to drill or conservation. So I thought that there is a crisis coming because there's nothing that can replace it. Uh, you need uh, oil for automobiles, for heating, for electric power. Natural gas, of course, is there, but it was, uh, at that point, secondary to oil. Uh, nuclear power was in its infancy and uh, didn't provide that much electricity. Wind was very erratic and still is. Solar was not developed. So it seemed to me that energy would one day culminate in a big crisis. And uh, the oil shortage uh, of 73 was due in part to politics and oil boycott. But it it indicated just how dependent we are on energy Mm -hmm. uh, in any form of motive power, electric power, uh, heating, air conditioning, uh, when the lights go out, everybody understands energy. Mm-hmm. Well, where do you think we are now, though, sir, with the whole technological evolution of fracking and things like that? Where, where do you think we are now? Fracking has increased oil and gas production enormously. And uh, it, that those technologies haven't worked with shale. But they've worked very well for oil and gas but the problem now is that some of the fracking is leading to uh, earthquake movements. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say that uh, it's not going to affect groundwater. We'll, we'll have to see. But there's a limit to it. 
Uh, my proposal many years ago was to cooperate with Mexico with a Gulf of Campeche gas line. Mm-hmm. And it got nowhere in Congress. It was the... Uh, but what would that have done? By well, we could uh, tap flare gas. The Mexican oil industry was flaring off excess gas and taking the oil, and we could have piped that gas into the United States. So offshore gas, cooperation with Mexico wasn't pursued. Mm-hmm. Right. And to, to this day, we're really not pursuing uh, policies that we could. Uh, for example, one uh, policy that I, I've advocated is offshore wind power, not mm-hmm. on land. Mm-hmm. Land is not going to work. The, uh, the, the numbers vary with the windiness of that part of the country, but 10 to 20 square miles per installed 1,000 uh, megawatts is typical, mm-hmm. but 10 to 20 square miles of land in New York City is out of the question. Even in the suburbs, it's out of the question. And you're still talking about maybe 500 giant windmills for a typical 1,000 megawatt power plant. Okay, where can you put the windmills? Offshore, as they're doing in Europe. So what we need is a North American wind alliance, a North American offshore wind alliance, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Why the three countries? The stretch of land, the five, 6,000 miles east and west coast, would give us maybe 5 trillion watts of installed capacity maximum. We only need one. The, the, power, the potential out there is five times what we need. And we're not and doing it because Exactly, my question. It, well, it's all politics, probably. It's, it's partly political. I don't know if we're cooperating with Canada or Mexico now. And it's partly economic. Uh, this, the systems have to be built to work. You have to have the systems everywhere. The wind is always strong someplace, in Alaska, in Mexico, in California, in the Gulf. Oh, it's always strong somewhere, but you don't know where and when. can't predict it. So you need an integrated system to start with. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. But, but, but you'd also cut down the carbon tremendously if you had that system set up, right? That would cut down carbon quite a bit. But here is a very tricky thing. Uh, what is the major cause for carbon dioxide and methane, the greenhouse gases? It's food. It's eating. It's agriculture. It's that whole food chain. It's not widely understood, but people, farm animals, farm mm-hmm. equipment, and everything that goes into agriculture is more than 60% of the greenhouse effect. And so, a large part of that is due to animals. So, so, let, so me, ha- let me, let me, can I just ask oh, one, one question? Because mm-hmm. I'm just curious yeah, because yeah. I work in, and so we have a lot of climate change deniers and we have a lot of greenhouse effect deniers. Is it true or not true based on your scientific uh, understanding of it? Because there's a lot of disinformation about it, and uh, I'm not a scientist, and so it definitely feels to me like something's changing. And Well, he, here's what, my what, feeling. What, what is uh, your evaluation? We, we have to distinguish climate from weather. The geological record shows that climate has always been changing. Uh, North Africa was the green, granary for Rome, uh, wheat fields, for the old Roman Empire. 
when they dug the Enos Channel, they found the fossilized remains of oak trees. Uh, 20,000 years ago, the English Channel apparently was small and forested. Uh, they say 20,000 years ago, we had an ice age here in New York City. So climate has always been changing, but very slowly. The cycles could be 20,000 years, 100,000 years, whatever it is. Uh, the fossilized uh, remains of oak trees in the petrified forest in our own Southwest. There are so many examples. So climate on Earth ha has always been changing. Hot Earth, cold Earth. The, the oil fields in Pennsylvania indicate that that part of the country was once marine, seawater, and warmer. So maybe continental drift, maybe just a hotter Earth. It's hard to tell. But the change is 300 million years ago. Mm -hmm. So now we're dealing with weather. And people don't see that. They say, well, the weather's always been erratic. Therefore, there's no climate change. They've confused weather with climate. Climate long range, weather immediate. But I think they're making a mistake because there, there are weather changes in cities. Atlanta has its own micro weather. Los Angeles has its own micro weather. Because New York of City the leaves carbon emissions. Because why? Uh, due to uh, carbon emissions and just the heat of the city, all the infrared light. So there's a city effect in New York, in Los Angeles, um, in Atlanta that everybody recognizes. So to say that mankind can't affect weather is uh, it, it's not factually correct. We are affecting weather. And that lends itself to the supposition that we're probably affecting climate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I want to know is why, not that you have the answer to this, but um, I'm sure you've dealt with Congress and politicians before. So why is it that they are always um, opposed to science, in your opinion? Because it doesn't fit their narrative? Or what is the deal? Well, I don't know if they're opposed to science. Uh, my understanding of of the way government works mm -hmm. from uh, my work uh, now about 40 years ago with Congress, with senators and uh, representatives, is that most information they get comes from legislative assistance, mm -hmm. which comes from lobbyists. Right who come from industry right. and other places, even the academic world mm -hmm. in small part. But from everywhere, you have lobbyists educating legislative assistants who then educate the congressman or the senator, mm -hmm. and that interacts with the executive branch of government, and it all interacts with local politics. Like corn alcohol is big in uh, corn states. It's a disaster economic, uh, environmentally. Mm -hmm. uh, to make corn alcohol takes more energy than you get out of it. It's not an energy source. It's an energy waster. It's supplementing fossil fuels. The, the inputs to agriculture to get alcohol from corn are greater than the energy you get when you burn the alcohol. Mm -hmm. Now, years ago, Vasily uh, Leontief won a Nobel Prize in economics for input-output economics. 1973. So you can take Vasily's work and chart how much of fossil fuels go into agriculture, mm -hmm. like 30% of natural gas, 
is reacted with steam to make the hydrogen, which is reacted with nitrogen to make ammonia, which is reacted with phosphates to make ammonium phosphate fertilizers for the farm. So if you tracked it all down, you would see that the amount of fossil fuels that go into, I call it food, agriculture, human beings, uh, their farm animals, tractors, electricity on the farm, transportation, it's 60 to 70% of the problem. So how do you change that? How do, what would we do to make something okay. like that different? <clears throat> what can we do? Mm-hmm. I say that we should turn more toward plant food and plant-derived foods, not eliminate meat. I'm not one of those persons who is all or nothing. But the biggest uh, contribution to carbon dioxide and especially methane, and methane is worse than carbon dioxide, 20 to 1. Mm-hmm. The biggest contributor is are the meats, the, the animals. So if we want something quick in a few decades, we should turn more toward uh, plant matter and plant-derived foods and even single-cell foods like yeast. Mm-hmm. See, in rich pasta, if you look at the label, you see toriutine. Toriutine is a yeast. So these yeasts are very nutritious, and alone they're not very appetizing, but they're a good uh, supplement. They, they mix well with other foods, mm-hmm. and they're a good supplement. So that's something that could be done quickly uh, with a big impact. Okay. Uh, so interesting. I the, don't know. There's I a problem like... between equilibrium and rate that you get to it. And I used to tell my classes, suppose you uh, win lotto. Mm-hmm. 100 million, then you flip over the card and on the back it says a dollar a year for the rest of your life. The equilibrium you're getting to and the rate you're getting there are two different matters. So there are plenty of policies that would save energy, but it might take a thousand years. Mm -hmm. There are policies that you could do maybe next week, but wouldn't amount to much. Right. So I'm saying that the, the biggest uh, challenge for us is to tackle agriculture. Now, some people will say, well, that brings up population. So, tricky, a very tricky question. It, it's obvious. And my quarrel with my other environmentalists, they probably don't think I'm an environmentalist, is how can you possibly exclude numbers of people in any computation of resource use? Pollution production. How could that be? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. But what was that whole thing that you told me? I forgot when it was, but you studied it and you had this whole theory or someone had a theory that we were going to run out of food. Yeah, well, we were talking about Tom Malthus, Thomas Malthus. Do you remember the philosopher, the economist in the, I guess, the early 1800s? He wrote a treatise about population growing exponentially, but our food, we were only able to grow linearly, a result of which we were going to run out of food. And I've always pointed out to Deirdre and my kids that technology has a way of solving a lot of problems. We ended up now, we have people dying more from obesity-related illnesses. And and also you know, from chemicals that they use for, you know, yeah, exactly. um, pesticides and... Yeah, yeah fertilizer. Fertilizer. But, but also when you were talking about the energy crisis in 73, 
uh, in 85 when I was in college, people talked about peak oil theory, meaning that we were going to run out of oil. Uh, but the new technologies, turns out we've been able to find more oil or Correct. extract more from the ground or from offshore facilities, et cetera. Correct. The, uh, the barrels recovered per foot of drilling was proven incorrect because it, it was based upon a certain level of technology. But as you right. just said, right. horizontal drilling, fracking, that's increased barrels per foot of drilling enormously. Right. right. So we've staved that off. But it's just a finite amount of oil in the world. So, so I guess the question I have is people are not going to stop their oil consumption. It's likely that people are not going to stop their agricultural production and meat consumption. Maybe they will on the margin, but it doesn't seem like they're ready to do any of those things. And I think we're in agreement that a lot of this stuff is contributing to the climate slash weather abnormalities. And so the the secondary question that would be, is there something that we could do from a technological perspective that could cleanse some of the methane, could take out some of the carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide. As an example, the way we're desalinating and creating fresh water in the UAE or Israel, is there a way to mechanically create photosynthesis and cleanse the or filter the air that we're living in? Well, chemically speaking, that that's a tall order to take CO2 out of the air. And... Um, I think the quickest thing that can be done is to drop, to phase out corn alcohol. It is a waster of land, a waster of energy. You're getting less out than you put in. The fertilizer runoff is causing all sorts of pollution problems around the Great Lakes. And, and we're doing that, but let's just tell our viewers, our listeners why we're doing that. We're doing that because, because of the energy crisis back it, in the day. To put uh, alcohol in, order, in gasoline to uh, raise the octane rating. Right. <clears throat> so we should phase it out and replace it with plant-derived foods, either plants themselves or plant-derived, or what I call single-cell food yeasts. All right, so it wouldn't, hurt the, it wouldn't hurt the farmers necessarily, right? You would, they would just be replanting this with different product. I, I think the farm lobby is going to be next to impossible to deal with. It, uh, if you think of the winter wheat and corn that goes into feeding barnyard animals, uh, cattle, pigs, whatnot, it's just a an enormous entrenched business that is not going to change easily. Mm-hmm. So your theoretical policy is one thing, but but practically speaking, it's very hard to change that. So my uh, feeling is that the, what we have to do is things that are practical, uh, n- not not look to eliminate meats, poultry, but just to lessen it, increase. Can, can we reverse some of the impact, or is it too late? Some people say it's too late. No, I wouldn't say it's too late, but it's, it's going to be a slow process, very slow. Uh, the same, it's like nuclear power. We made a big mistake. We had to have a 1,000-megawatt power plant nuclear they overheat. Some melted down. Nuclear power died all around the world because we sold the uh, 1,000 megawatt scale power plant because of its economy. But if you have a small power plant, like 300 megawatts, as on a ship, then it's safer 
it, uh, had nuclear power taken that direction, we'd have more nuclear power now. And there's an oddity here. That would have been yeah. less carbon emission, right? It would eliminate uh, carbon from uh, hydrocarbon sources. But the Bill Gates Foundation is funding a small nuclear reactor. It's called the Traveling Wave Reactor because they move the fuel rods around so that theoretically it might not need refueling in for 20 years. But where is it being built? In China. Why not here? Because of restrictions, red tape, whatever it is. Right, and fear, fear. Uh, fear. Right? We have the reactor in Shoreham. Has it ever been operationalized? Never, right? No. It's There's one it's in Rockland, at, too. It's one in Rockland, yeah. yep. It's fear. Right. Indian Point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I view nuclear power mm-hmm. small as, uh, it should be small, and it's a supplement. A supplement to what? Well, we could have a massive uh, program in a North American offshore uh, wind alliance. Just putting a, a group of windmills offshore in a little area is not going to work because the wind is erratic. Uh, for example, Long Island, where I live, what's the windiest month? January. 50% of the wind power is expressed in four days, mm-hmm. scattered around the month. Three like the hours here, market. five hours there. <laughs> so you're dealing with something that's terribly erratic, strong but erratic. So you need a big area. Uh, T. Boone Pickens failed with his uh, Mesa Energy building windmills up the central part of the U.S. Why? The land. Uh, again, it's uh, anywhere from 10 to 20 square miles you need per typical power plant. Maybe 500 windmills. So there's a real estate problem, but it's too small. That That's just a little region. The winds are, blow strongly in the Midwest, but not all the time. Yeah, you got to go from Alaska to Mexico, from Canada in the east all the way down to Mexico, and now, now you've covered a big geographical area. You, it's very would be very reliable. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. So I have a question. Just switching the topic yeah, a little bit. Please. But um, from someone who did absolutely terribly in chemistry because um, my brain just doesn't work that way. Um, what, how did you and when did you realize that this was something that you loved and were you were good at? When did I arrive at this uh, program? Just, no, when did you arrive at the fact that you loved science and, and chemistry? Oh, that's an and, interesting question. Uh, uh, we had a, uh, in elementary school uh, in the 12th grade, the teacher had us do a project. And uh, 
my friend, my best friend, was injecting ink into tulips to see how long it took him to die. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking I got to come up with a project here that's better than that. And I built a little telescope that could uh, that saw one of the moons of Jupiter. Really? Yeah. So I was excited. I was I wanted astronomy. Uh, I, I think elementary school. Uh, but you know, I, I, I like that question. I'm arguing that science is a method, not a subject. Anybody can do it. Everybody will do it. It's, some people think, oh, you have to have an advanced degree. Nonsense. Oh, you have to work in a laboratory. Nonsense. Some of the best scientists had no start whatsoever. Uh, they started sweeping the floor. Uh, in in uh, in a chemical laboratory and uh, came up with the rules of chemical um, electrolytic processes, uh, Faraday's laws. So you could go down the list of scientists who've had very little formal training. In fact, well, it is a gift. It is something you're born with. I don't think I could ever build a telescope, my, my no matter wife, what happens. My wife knows the right chemistry to keep her hair flat in all different types of weather. <laughs> So even though we have climate change, that hair is straight as an arrow no matter what the hell's going on. So she probably has a PhD in chemistry. No, my hairdresser it. does. Well, but I mean, that's even involves chemistry, color, hair color and straightening processes. But I think you have to be born with that gift. You obviously have a gift and not all of us have it. So, Well, my, my conception is that uh, for science, a person needs uh, curiosity. Mm -hmm. Everybody has that. Then you need uh, imagination, you know, what experiment to do. Everybody has imagination. So everybody can do it. They don't fancy themselves as maybe being in science. But that's why I'm, I'm working with, uh, with Paul O'Neill, the Cardinal shortstop. We're trying to show students, young, young people in elementary school and high school, that you can do a little experiments on your own. And... And think about things. It's it's a it's a method, not a subject. Mm -hmm. I mean, before there was chemistry, there was astronomy. There was science before the computer was invented. Of course. So, uh, how did you meet Paul? Just for our listeners, how did you meet him? Yeah, okay. The, I'm sorry. How did you meet the Cardinal, the baseball player? I met uh, Paul through Bert, my son, who is a sports agent, and uh, Paul the Young is his client. So I met him, and I found out he liked chemistry. And uh, but you taught him some stuff, though, right? You th yeah. You've helped his game. How'd you help his game? Uh, I I haven't helped his game at all. I uh, I, I don't <laughs> know. I maybe he's being modest. I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the chemistry that I speak well, about. Well, let me Paul. ask a different question. How how can stuff that you know in science relate to baseball? Let's say okay. it that way. Here, here is a big problem for athletes, muscle versus tendons. Muscles you see in the mirror, everybody's into muscle building, but they're not into tendon building, and the tendons deliver power. You take a bow, you stretch it, you release the string, the wood snaps back, it delivers the power, the energy per unit time. So if a man is doing a lot of weightlifting, heavy weightlifting, he's developing strong tendons, but they get crystalline and they lose their flexibility. If you don't do any weightlifting whatsoever, then your 
developing and doing just calisthenics, you're developing tendons that have elasticity, but they don't have as much power as they should. So it's a balance. And I can never tell anyone what to do. It's up to the individual. But they should realize that muscles can be built in a season or two. Tendons take a decade because the tendon gets its nutrition by molecular diffusion, random motion of molecules diffusing in. Muscles get their nutrition by veins and arteries, perfusion. So you can develop muscles quickly. They'll heal quickly relative to the tendons. But your tendons is where you get your power. That's why you find a lot of people who don't look that strong but they can really hit the baseball mm-hmm. or the golf ball. Well, how do you build your tendons, though? You got to do it very slowly by doing. I'm going to go home Playing and try. the game and doing exercises that that involve flexibility. So, the, like, these does yoga though. and stuff help? Does yoga and Pilates things like that help in that area, tendon building, or not really? Uh, Asking I for think a friend. I know of no program. All the programs I've seen deal yep. with muscle building. Muscle building. And if you, if you want to build tendons, you've got to start young, play the game, get a lot of rest, because tendons recover very slowly. In fact, the animal kingdom is noted for this. Uh, the fastest animals in the world, uh, the cheetahs, uh, they take long periods of rest. The best cross-country runners, they take long periods of rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard a few baseball players, uh, pitchers joking that, oh, my secret is sleep. You gotta rest the tendons. They regenerate much slower than muscles. The use of steroids, does that have an impact negatively on tendons probably, right? Well, I think the steroids have the biggest impact on muscle. They develop muscle They benefit the muscle, but isn't a side effect that they hurt the tendons? Yes, they're they're developing muscles too strong for the tendons that attach the muscle to the bone. Right, so that's like been a lot of of the problems with these these athletes. You remember Mo Vaughn ripped his uh, bicep tendon. They say some of that was related to... Well, that's why I think there's so many injuries now in sports. The muscle, the skeletal muscles have become too strong for the tendons that bind them to bone. And it affects the joints. Mm-hmm. So the chemistry is very different of a tendon and a muscle. So, so let me let me ask you: If you had a group of young kids in your presence, and you wanted to inspire them uh, to think about chemistry, and you wanted to put it in their head to create that spark of intellectual curiosity, what would you say? I'd say it's a science is a method. It's not a subject. Everyone can do it. And uh, most of it is just common sense. If it's athletics you want, play the game. Get plenty of rest. A varied diet is the best diet in whatever direction it goes, but varied cellular food. Uh, Lots of uh, playing, lots of rest, very little and discreet, careful weightlifting. You're in the clear. I'm in the clear. Well, I got to get off keto, though. It sounds like right. I need probably need more fruit in my diet. Um, no, but maybe that's the key to this long life, right? I think also. Don't you feel like being interested in something and having a passion keeps you young at heart and and makes you want to wake up and do something every day? Doesn't it keep you alive and well? 
Should having something yes. to do, right? Yes. I always say that to Anthony. He can never retire. Well, no, I don't want to. No. God forbid. But no. I, before we let you go, though, sir, I want to ask you about the weather station moon concept. What is uh -huh. that exactly? What does that mean? I would like to see a weather station, unmanned station built on the moon to get a better view of the Earth. Um, if, if you imagine holding a baseball at arm's length, that's the full moon as seen from the Earth. Imagine holding a basketball at arm's length. That's the size of the earth as seen from the moon. Mm -hmm. So the weather station, wherever they put it on the moon. My, my arms, sir, are like Shaquille <laughs> O'Neal's arms. I was just trying to get the distance. <laughs> okay. Wherever they put the weather station, the earth is going to be in one spot. But it'll have phase changes, like we see the moon with phase changes, but it won't move around in the sky. And we can get a good view of the earth, the cloud cover. Now... Uh, cloud cover, there are different types of clouds. The, the speed of clouds, uh, nighttime observation of the dark side of the earth as for infrared emissions due to uh, cities and industry, we'd get a better and fuller picture of the earth uh, as to whether the earth is getting cloudier, whether winds are picking up, how much radiation the earth is emitting, its reflectivity, that will tell us whether we're going to have a hot earth, a greenhouse effect, or a cold earth, the albedo effect. And there are two effects are at odds with each other. Uh, if the Right now, uh, weather patterns are a bit more erratic, but the data of the last few decades indicates that there's a little more rainfall, which means the earth is getting a little cloudier. The w winds are picking up a little bit over the last 10, 20 years. If that keeps up, there'll be more high particles in the atmosphere, which will induce cloud cover, which will make the Earth cloudier and colder. So the two forces are opposite each other. Right now, greenhouse is winning. The Earth is getting hotter. But the cloud cover effect may take over. When? I don't know, a century from now, two centuries from now, maybe half a century from now. Nobody, nobody knows. So those two effects can only be studied in large from, I would say, the moon. Very hard to piece together data here on, on the ground or satellites. It's better than nothing, but I think a space station, uh, a weather station moon is, would help a lot in determining what's really happening. Okay, if we, if we can just get the fight to dial down a little bit on cable news, we might be able to get one or yeah, two policies done, put in. Right? I mean, I it would be amazing. Well, you've been an unbelievable guest. I mean, you were uh, billed as an unbelievable guest by Rob Tao, but you've exceeded those expectations wildly. <laughs> and you've also fortified me for my uh, cable news debates, where I'm a Republican, lone wolf Republican, apparently, that believes that there is a, an effect that human beings are having on the climate. I'm going to tell them that you are supporting that point of view, so that'll help me out a lot. Thank, Thank you for having me on. Oh, no, it's a Thank big, you big very gift much. for us. It's a big gift for us. Here. God Thank bless you. Thank you for you, coming sir. in. Thank you.